Well, I want to begin actually in Philippians this morning with a promise that Paul points out. Let me read these verses, this, this, this one verse. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, he began, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That is a promise, that is an encouragement, and frankly, it has the same purpose that our passage does before us today. Paul is addressing believers, and he's saying, listen guys, I want you to know this. God finishes what he starts, and he has started to work in you, and he will never give up. He won't let up. He will be faithful and finish his work. Count on it. Be encouraged. Now, if you haven't memorized that verse there, mark it down. Do so. Memorize that verse. And I'm praying at the end of this sermon today that this verse will mean far more to you than when we started. Okay? So remember that verse as we move through today. I titled the sermon today, The Golden Chain of God's Invincible Love. The Golden Chain of God's Invincible Love. And I want to just read um, all of 28, 29, and 30 so you feel the flow because it's been a couple weeks since we were in Romans 8, 28. Paul says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together. Now, let me say that in the New American Standard. And we know that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. So, Two experiences. Our love is what we tend to experience, our love for God, and then we learn that He is the source, the author of that love. He has called us according to His purpose. So from God's perspective, called according to His purpose, from our experience, love, love for God. Now listen to how He goes on. For or because those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that he might be firstborn or preeminent among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is referred to as the golden chain of salvation. It was uh, a guy back in the late 1500s who dubbed this uh, William... Oh, I can't remember his name now. He's dead. But <laughs> it was a great title. So uh, I, need, I need some help. You want, can I get a volunteer? You want to come help me? Can you come break this chain? You want to come just see if you can pull this thing apart. Break it. Break it for me. Give, give it a good tug. Pull it. Oh, man. You're strong, but you can't break it, can you? You can't. Good job. Nice work. Okay. Here is, this is the shortest chain you'll ever see. <laughs> Useful only for sermon illustration. There's five links in this chain. And I tried to spray paint it gold, but it didn't really work that well. It begins with the first link, foreknown. It moves to predestined, then called, then justified and glorified. The point Paul makes here is if God has foreknown you, you will without any doubt, be glorified. That is his work, and he finishes what he starts. 
And so our job today is to move through each link of this chain and understand what does this mean? How does it connect? How does the first hand to the next and the next and the next and the next? And why is this encouraging? Remember the whole point. Paul writes this to believers to say, listen, Christian, God is working all things for your good. And then he explains that by giving them the theology behind that. The the inner workings of God that would reassure the Christian, I am his and I will always be. Nothing can separate me from his love. That's where he concludes, right? What can separate us from his love? Nothing. So, let's do this. Five unbreakable links you can see on your sermon notes on the back of your bulletin. Five unbreakable links. Those whom God foreknew, foreknew. This is how it reads, for those, because uh, those, and I just want to emphasize the those here, those. Some people say, well, this is just kind of a generic group of people, or, or this is referring to nations. That is not at all the context. Paul is talking to believers. He's just reassured them that God's working for their good, all things for their good, for those who are called. Those is consistently referring to individuals, okay? for those whom he foreknew. Now this word is is very important to understand, to interpret correctly. In fact, there are diverging theologies here that really build out of a mishandling of this word. If you interpret this word incorrectly, you can take a theology off of one wrong word and really run off into left field. So let's do this carefully and correctly according to Scripture. The word is proegno. It's rooted in the word prognosco. Gnosko, to know, before, pro. Okay, prognosco. It means to know or to choose beforehand. It carries with it uh, this idea of close, intimate love. To foreknow is uh, synonymous with to forelove. Or to for, I'm making my own word up, for choose, to be for chosen. I want to show you this in scriptures. When we think for no, we think I know about. I know about. In the scripture, though, that is true. You can know about something, but it always tends to point to more than that. And I'll give you some examples here. Let's go to Yada in the Old Testament Hebrew. Now, Adam, Yada. Eve, his wife, he knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. Okay, the joke is that Adam walks up and he's like, hey, hi, Eve. And all of a sudden, the baby happens, right? That's not what the text is saying. He knew her. What are we saying? We got kids present, so let's, uh, let's make it high level. This is an intimate love of marriage covenant, right? This is a sexual um, intimacy that brings forth from her womb a child. He knew her. It's not just he knew about her. He knew her. He loved her, okay? Same exact word in Genesis 18 is used. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abram, Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have yada, I have known him. And the ESV rightly translates this 
in this context here, chosen. So you have this exchange that's taking place. I've chosen him. Same word carries this connotation. I know him. I've chosen him. He's mine. That he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. There are many more examples. I'll give you just a quick number. God says through Amos to Israel, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Now, is he saying, I don't know about the other nations. I don't know if they exist or not, but I know you are here. I see you. I know you. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, listen, Israel, I chose you. I chose you. You're mine. You're the ones I know. You see? And then Jeremiah. Look at the synonyms that run with this one. Before I formed you, Jeremiah, in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I chose you. This is, this is the, the love of choice. I set my love upon you. I consecrated. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. For no, in this scenario, is I chose. I chose you. In Romans 11.2, we see this word show up again. For God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. They are his. Let's look at possession here. His people whom he chose, has elected, has foreloved. That is the flow of this word. One last uh, pairing of references that I found really helpful. We learned a couple weeks ago, we love him because he first loved us. Look at the effect that is rooted in the cause. We love him, effect. What's the cause? He loved us. He first loved us. The word first there is critically important. You don't ever wash that word away. It matters. He first loved us, which is the reason, the basis, the overflow of everything that comes from us, which is love. Now look at 1 Corinthians 8.3. If anyone loves God, effect, he is known by God. There it is. Same word. He is loved. He is chosen by God. Cause. Effect and cause. So, this consistent display in Scripture has to help us then rightly understand words like this. We can't just drop into the Bible and say, oh, foreknew. That means that God knew about something I was going to do. What we're dealing here is with a sovereign, unconditional election. This is the work of God. It is unconditional. God is not basing His choosing of us on any merit foreseen or actual in us. He's not saying, well, I'm going to pick like the best team. I'm going to pick the cream of the crop. Uh, This guy's going to be pretty awesome. Uh, No, I don't want her. Uh, I'll go with her. No. He says, out of my good pleasure and because of my own will, I choose to set my covenant love on this one and this one and this one. That is his free, sovereign choice. And that is what he's done. Now, in another branch of, uh, uh, of handling of this word, um, there is what I would refer to as binocular theology. This is where people see the word foreknow and they say, well, that must mean that God foresees that I have faith in him someday and so he chooses me. 
It is foreseen, self-determining faith that some say that's what this word foreknow is. So you get the binoculars. First of all, this is wrong on so many levels, and I, just, I think it's important that we point this out. Um, the idea of God looking down through the corridors of time and saying, oh, look at that. Jeremy, when he's age five, is going to choose me by faith that he mustered up himself. Right? He, he put faith in me. So you know what? I'm going to choose him. I foreknew him. And so I predestined him. Is that, does that flow here in the context at all? It doesn't, that doesn't ring true at all. Number one, God has never looked through the corridors of time to learn anything. He never has looked through the binoculars and discovered a thing. You know why? Because he wrote the book. He doesn't have to read it. He's the author. He ordains all things. That's the basis of his omniscience and knowing of all things. So that's wrong on that level. It's also wrong because literally if, if, if God was looking through the binoculars to see who would choose him, he would see no one choose him. None of us would. We are lost in sin, blinded. We have stopped up ears. We have hard hearts. We are depraved to the core. There's nothing in us that would even want to muster faith up if we could, and we can't. So God would look through the binoculars and see nothing. It is so important that we guard our hearts here. When dealing with doctrine, it is so easy to slip into philosophy. We slide over into philosophy because we start saying, well, hold on now. In order for God's love to be the way that we think it should be, we have to have free will, and, and that means that he has to love us all the same. And, 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 and so he, he gives his son Jesus, and then he just says, whoever wants to believe, just believe, and then save yourselves, right? And then that makes it fair, because then if you reject him and you go to hell, well, that's, that's what you chose. And if you choose him, then you get heaven. And guess what that is? That's philosophy. That is not theology. That is philosophy. Listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones. When men substitute their own thoughts and their own understanding of the love of God for the plain teaching of Scripture, they become philosophers rather than theologians. The reality is, is that we are not as free as we think we are. We are enslaved to sin. We are blinded by Satan. We cannot engage a will because the will itself is enslaved. Now, we choose, don't we? We choose sin. We choose rebellion. We choose hardness of heart every time. Left to ourselves, heaven is empty. Hell is bursting at the seams. That's the reality. There is not free will the way we tend to think free will is. Adam and Eve had it. As soon as the fall took place, that free will, choose to obey, choose to disobey, had an only option, which was, I want disobedience. I am bent from the beginning toward rebellion. So, be warned. When confronting challenging truths of Scripture, let them speak plainly. And don't slide them away and ignore them and choose philosophy because it fits better in your mind. It fails to glorify God when we do that. And we lose out 
on what Paul says is one of the greatest comforts of the Christian life, to know these things. So, I want to point out in the book of Revelation, which we're just finishing up, all of the times, over and over, this isn't all of them, but this is some of them, all of the times that the cause of perseverance through tribulation is attributed to the writing of names before the foundation. Listen to these verses and ask yourself, what's the cause, what's the effect? Who foreknew these people, forechose them, and wrote their names? All who dwell on the earth will worship it, that is the beast, everyone whose name has not been written, when? Before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Friends, this is the same act. God foreknowing, pinning names, individuals, actual people who live in actual times throughout history. He says, I choose you. In goes your name. Before the foundations. Another one. The dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast. So here's a preventative, oh, I almost fell off the stage. <laughs> I don't do that often, but man, if it ever happens, it's going to be bad. <laughs> a preventative grace is I wrote your name before the foundations were laid and because I wrote your name, you will not marvel and chase after the beast. Cause, effect. Not God saying, oh look, there's a group of people who won't chase after the beast. Therefore, I'll write their names in the Lamb's Book of Life. That's reactionary, not sovereign and saving grace. God is the author of your salvation. He started it and he'll finish it. And this is especially in view of the finishing work. He holds all those whom he foreknew, forechose, foreloved. Revelation 21, our, our, our chapters here this Wednesday. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, that is the new Jerusalem, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. When were they written there? before the ages, before the foundations, all the way back before let there be light was even spoken. God is the one who knows his people. So point number one, those whom God foreknew, he also predestined, okay? So we're dealing here, first of all, with foreknowledge, which is the same we understand now as election, his sovereign choice of those whom he will save. Something then follows that immediately after that choice is made in eternity past comes this word, predestination. And some of you, when you hear this word, oh, you're just like, where's the door? Right, just, oh man, this is, we're going predestined. How many arguments have we heard on this word? Let me just say something. Just because they've argued about it for 400 years. I've heard that so many times. They've argued about it for 400, it's actually 500 now or, or more. Um, it means we're not gonna solve it today. That's what's what I always hear. That's wrong thinking. What hasn't been argued about for hundreds and hundreds of years? Mishandling of the word 
is opportunity for accuracy, correction, and faithfulness. Our job is not to write off our work, but to lean into our work. Predestination is biblical. Christian, if you are going to be biblical, you must believe in predestination. It is not optional. It is a doctrine that is for you and good, and it is called forth from the very book that you love and embrace. So let's talk about it. What does it mean? He predestined them. For those, that is, the people that have been promised from beforehand the love of God, those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He, Jesus, might be firstborn among many brothers. The word predestined means to assign a destiny beforehand. God assigns a destiny. He's concerned about the end. What's the end point of those whom I have foreloved and set my love upon in eternity past? What do I want to see happen in their lives? Well, the end point is conformation to the image of Jesus Christ. Every single individual that I have chosen in eternity past, I will irrevocably, unquestionably, with all surety, I will bring into righteousness, the very righteousness of my Son. I will conform them into the image of Jesus Christ. It's going to happen. I assign that destiny to them, and I do that before the words, let there be light, are spoken. The goal of this, the aim, is that Jesus Christ would be preeminent among many brothers. Think of this word, among many brothers. You can add sisters to this as well, right? We're dealing here with adoption. How often we, 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 have, we have this example before us, but we fail to draw upon it. Adoption takes place around the world every day. What happens in adoption? A family of their own free volition decides we want to adopt. We want to adopt. We want to overflow our love and set it on someone. And then they go and choose. They choose whom they will adopt. And when they adopt, they bring that person into their family in the fullness of their love. And they, they set covering and protection over that, that child and they raise them as one of their own. Jesus is the firstborn of the family of God. The one who is preeminent overall. Predestination has as its aim the end point of your salvation. Listen to Ephesians 1. It's really the parallel passage on Romans 8, 28 to 30. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, places even as He foreknew. There we go. Chose us in Him. Look at the order, the sequence. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. That was when the choice took place. Before we were born or had done any good or bad, there was grace. It was unconditional. Look at the aim, the goal that we should be conformed to the image of His Son, holy and blameless before Him. In love, what comes next? The next link in the chain, predestination. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ so that Jesus would be firstborn among many brothers. It is almost parallel with the very words that Paul gives us here. He did this according to the purpose of 
His will. His will. If free will is taught in the Bible, my friends, I tell you, every single time it's taught, it is not about us. It is about God. It is God's free will that saves people. And to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has blessed us in the beloved. Another occurrence of the word predestined shows up in verse 11. In Him we have obtained an inheritance. Part of this family now, you see? He's brought us in. He adopted us. Having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who? Romans 8.28. Look at this. Who works all things. All things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. Do you see how the flow moves from the first link to the second link? Chosen by God, sovereignly, unconditionally, and then assigned a destiny. That destiny is holiness. Now, the third link in the chain those whom God foreknew, for love, for chose, He also predestined. That is, assigned a destiny that we would be conformed to the image of His Son. And those whom He predestined, He also called. Look at how this flow un- unfolds. Those whom He predestined, He also called. What Paul wants us to know here is there is no break in the chain. There is not one single person who falls off of this chain. No one, no one is lost in this sequence through the golden chain of God's invincible love. The word called here is special. You see this all over the New Testament. It means called to life. This is how it goes. God the Father calls His chosen to life in His Son through the regenerating power of His Spirit. It's a Trinitarian work in connection with the proclamation of the gospel, okay? So think about this. This is a call to life. The Father calls His chosen to life in in His Son. This is a a dry bones come alive moment, okay? This happens in time, by the way. This is not done before the foundations. This happens at the moment that God ordains to make you alive. For me, it was five years old. I was dead, spiritually, lifeless. I was not looking for salvation. I was not beating down the doors of heaven. And all of a sudden, he opened my eyes to see Jesus Christ. And the call of God came, and I lived. I lived. Let me show you how this kind of unfolds. I mentioned a few weeks ago there are two calls set on display in the New Testament. The general call, that is the proclamation that's going to the ends of the earth. And then the effectual call, the the call that is powerful of God, which is the the equivalent of Lazarus, come forth. It's that call that saves in the moment. I've given you some examples of both. The general call, first, here's a few. Jesus himself, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Come all, come everybody, come You see that? That is the broad stroke invitation. Go to the nations and tell them, come. Jesus in John 7, 37b, if anyone thirsts, anyone, if you thirst, come to me and drink. Jesus says, come to me and drink. John 3, 16, a verse we all love. 
For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes, now never separate the belief, it's whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. This is the general call of the Gospel. This is our commission, isn't it? This is what we do. Every Sunday, every week, out in the workplace, out to the ends of the earth, Steve and Audrey carry this call all the way to Tunisia. Every person. We're not worried about, well, are they elect? Are they chosen? Are they? That's not even on our mind at that point. The, the goal is, come to Jesus. You've got to know there's a Savior of sinners. Come! That's the general call. The reality, though, is that this call is rejected by hard hearts, by ears closed, by blinded eyes, by captivity to Satan. This call is rejected. Listen to the verses that follow John 3.16. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light. They love darkness rather than light. Jesus standing before you, the light, saying, come. And people said, no. Why would I want to do that? I don't want a king. I don't want a sovereign. My will be done. I don't want to go to the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Now I'll show you the effectual call. This is an amazing passage in Acts. As the call, the general call goes out, for so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light to the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. They're preaching the gospel. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Now listen to the cause. Listen to what is functioning underneath the general call of the gospel is the work of God, the supernatural saving work of God. As many as were appointed, chosen, for loved to eternal life, believed, not a person more, not a person less. In that moment, in that moment, at the proclamation of the gospel, God was pleased to save in power. Now, there may have been someone who heard that presentation and hardened their heart and walked away, and two weeks later, they heard it again, and God said, I call you to life. Right? We don't know when he's going to call. If, if, if you've been hearing the gospel your whole life and you're like, I'm still cold, I don't care, I'm dead to, to Christ, I, I, I'm living for me, you don't know what God might do tomorrow. Which is why parents keep praying. It's why we keep praying for loved ones, co-workers, and lost. Because ultimately, we can't save them even when we say the words of the gospel perfectly. It's not the eloquence of our words that saves anybody. It is the supernatural power of God who causes the dead, dry bones to come alive. Consider your calling. Brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful not many of you were of noble birth, but God, God the Father here, God chose. When did He do that? In eternity past. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is weak in the world to shame uh, 
to sh- oh, to shame the wise, to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God purposes to save in such a way that makes clear you didn't do it. You didn't save yourself. God saved you. That's his point. If you're going to boast, the only boast you have is it's all of grace. It's all of him. Who am I? I'm the rebel. He goes on. It is because of him, because of the Father, that you are in Christ Jesus, that you love him, that you believe him, that you trust him as Savior, Lord, and treasure. How did it happen? Well, Jesus became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. That, my friends, was the work of the Holy Spirit. He he opened your eyes to see a Jesus so glorious that you ran to him with all your heart as Savior and Lord. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I like to ask people the question when they say, yeah, but I, I remember when I was saved. I chose God. I chose Jesus. And I don't disagree with that. So did I. The question is not, did you choose him? The question is, how? How did you choose him? And the answer is, because God chose you and changed your heart to see glory and beauty, a king to bow before. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Jesus says, the words I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who don't believe. So he's literally illustrating our point right here in his own audience. He says, listen, I've shared the good news and that some of you have hardened hearts. Jesus knew from the beginning those who were who did not believe and, those who, uh, and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come, not will. He didn't say no one will come. He says no one can. We're dealing with ability. No one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. All that the Father has foreknown for love, for chosen, he predestines and he will call. And in that moment, we come. We come. It's the work of God. Titus 3, 5, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. How did he do it? By the washing of regeneration and renewal by the power of the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter, now note the consistency. This is Jesus. Uh, John Calvin's not saying any of these words. Let's, let's just be clear. Well, I don't know why he gets all the credit. Why, 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 why is it Calvinism? I don't even understand that. We're talking Peter, John, Jesus, Paul. This is Bible stuff. If Calvin believed it, fine, great. So did Luther, so did Augustine, so do I. We're not Pickensians, right? <laughs> We're Christians. That's why you don't hear me use that label. I don't like it at all. It's not Calvin's idea. This is Bible truth, clear as day. You're a chosen race, Christian a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you to life. He brought you forth out of your darkness and into his marvelous light. 
We believe and teach at Good Shepherd Community Church that salvation comes only through the divinely initiated supernatural work of regeneration, that is new birth, by the power of the Holy Spirit. It comes in connection with the proclamation or the testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This sovereign and instantaneous work overcomes the sinner's depraved resistance. This, my friends, is so glorious. What do we do? We resist. What does God do in love because he's chosen to save? He overcomes that resistance and that depravity, enabling and securing the sinner's, here's a key word, willful response. The reality is, is that we don't have free will. We need wills set free, and that is the work of the Holy Spirit. He frees our will that's enslaved to the dark and sin, and we see Christ, and we run in repentance and faith to Jesus, crying, save me from my sins. Not only as Savior, but also as Lord, King. We sing this all the time. It's been, it's been a song you've been singing. I just want to point this out. So when we sing it at the end of this service, you appreciate the theology that's happening in these words. I was in darkness all of my life. I never knew the day from the night. I was blind. But Spirit, you made me see. I swore I knew the way on my own, head full of rocks and heart made of stone. But Spirit, you moved in me. At your touch, my sleeping spirit was awakened. On my darkened heart, the light of Christ has shone. Here's our word. Called to life. Called by God. Called into a kingdom that cannot be shaken. I am a citizen of heaven by God's unmerited favor. By grace and grace alone. Unconditional, sovereign salvation. It is praise to God to embrace these truths. Don't grind at them. Don't, don't, don't wrestle God down on these points. Embrace the glory of God's revelation in these things and sing your heart out. God's effectual call will never fail to save. God never attempts to save someone and fails. That would be a break in the chain, and this chain is invincible. Every single person he foreknows, foreloves, forechooses, he predestines. Every single person he predestines, he at some point in their life, he calls them to life. And every single person he calls to life, look at how it goes, he also justifies. This is not just a blanket call, I hope some people get saved out there. This is, I have a bride. I am going to secure them. I am going to bring her in glory to my son. He also justifies. Those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified. This may be the most amazing link in the chain. It's the reason why we know that there's more than one call here. Because every single person he calls to life is declared righteous in Jesus Christ. Justified, to be declared righteous by grace through faith in Christ. Where did that faith come from? Not from me. I couldn't muster it up. 
I don't have those resources nor the desire to do so. All of the sudden, the call to life both enables my response and equips it with faith such that I place that faith in Christ and I am declared righteous just as if I never sinned. Divine declaration. I say it this way, Christ did not die to accomplish a potential salvation of people who may or may not choose him. This is believed by far too many people out there. That is not what the Bible teaches. Jesus did not die hoping that his sacrifice and suffering would somehow maybe save someone. He died to pay the redemption price for his bride. He paid for the actual sins of actual sinners whose names have already been written from before the foundations in the Lamb's book of life by the Father. That was his assignment. Go secure her salvation. Now, there, were more than, there was more than that happening on the cross. The love for the world was set on display when the Son died. Absolutely, without a doubt. Creation itself was redeemed through this atoning work. But friends, if Jesus paid for every sin of every sinner that will ever live when He died on the cross, hell is unjust. There's no double jeopardy with God. He can't say, well, Jesus paid for every single sin ever committed and then sentenced people to pay for their sins in the fires of hell. That's not just. Jesus paid, secured, died, atoned for the exact amount of sin of every single person that God the Father had chosen in eternity past. Which is why the lake of fire burns with justice eternally for those who reject Jesus, which, by the way, all of us would. All of us would. We would all be there. These doctrines do not puff up at all. These doctrines humble. To lead us to sing words like amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I don't deserve this. But he loves me, and I'm confident of it. He loves me. The fifth link of the chain. Those whom God foreknew, He also predestined. Those whom He predestined, He also called. Those whom He called, He also justified. Every single one He justified. And every single one He justified, He also glorified. There's a lot of people out in our world that believe that somehow you can lose your salvation. I don't know what Bible they get that from, but it is not from the Holy Word of God. That is an errant belief. You talk about un, unstable Christian life. I had a buddy who lived like that. Every time he sinned, he would be in the stairwell beating his fist into the wall to somehow atone for his sin. And I'm like, dude, Jesus paid for all your sins. You don't have to pay. You don't have to fear. You're His. Just trust and believe. Look at the flow. Look at the chain. Not one will be lost. Every single one. To be glorified is to experience the fullness of salvation. It is to be made righteous. By the way, that is the destiny that you've been assigned by the Father. Righteous. 
conformed to the image of Christ. To live forever with your king in his kingdom. We're going to be studying the new heavens and new earth. That is the gift of all that the Father has chosen to save. And that is the certain future of all who love God and believe in Jesus Christ. I love that this word is past tense. I absolutely love this. This is purposeful. This is a purposeful past tense. You might say, well, I, I know he, he called me to life. I, I, I love him. You might say, well, I, I know I'm justified, but how, how can he say I am glorified? I'm not yet there. And the point that Paul is making in, in, in these words through the Spirit is it's as good as done. <laughs> it, it, in the mind of God, it's as good as done. It's certain. That chain won't break. You will surely meet your king in righteousness, pure and holy. The bride will be adorned beautifully without spot or wrinkle. She will shine bright before Jesus the groom. All that the Father gives me, Jesus says, will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never, keyword, never cast out. There is nothing a sinner can do that will cause the grip of the Savior to let go. Why? Because he already knows. <laughs> he already knows. He paid for all of your sins. He already died. He atoned for every single one. You're not going to surprise him. You're his. You're his. By grace. No one can come. It doesn't say no one will. It says no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And look what that means. Certain salvation. If the Father draws you, you will be saved. You will be justified and in between, we know that sanctification is the work of God with us as well, and you will be glorified. And I will raise him up on the last day. God is the ultimate finisher. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. Let's go back to the verse we started with. I am sure of this. Now feel this. With all that we've put beneath our feet, that granite foundation of doctrine, the glories of the doctrines of grace. I'm sure of this, believer, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful. He will, he will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Does that meet you at a deeper level? The chain will not break. It will not break. God's love is invincible. Our response this morning, there's many different directions we could look for our response. One thing I just want to say right at the beginning is if you're here and you're asking this question, am I elected? Did God choose me? Let me answer that question by pointing you to Jesus Christ and calling your heart to embrace Him as Lord and Savior. Calling you to turn from your sins. Calling you to bow before the Sovereign King. Love Him! That's the answer. Love Him. Run to Him. 
with all your heart. God can use that call in the very words I speak in this moment to call those dry bones to come alive. If you are not saved, He can save you today, right here, right now. The call is to all sinners, run to Jesus, look to Him, be saved. Everyone who looks to the Son, who confesses their sins, who leans upon Him in faith, will be saved. That's the call. But I can't save you. God can. God can. Believers, if God is for us, who can be against us? These are the questions we'll look at next week. I want to plant them in your mind as we go here. They're so connected to this doctrine. If God is for you, Christian, who can be against you? His love is invincible. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who? Satan? Nope. I don't think so. The great accuser of the brothers? No. Not even Satan. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? That's where we started this chapter. There's no condemnation. We're going to finish it with who shall separate us from the love of Christ. The answer is no one and nothing because the chain is unbreakable. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we glory in Your sovereign grace. We are here, all of us, stand guilty, condemned under You, unrighteous, unholy, unworthy, and yet in Your sovereign, gracious love, the intent of Your heart, of Your own will, You have chosen to set love upon sinners like us. We delight in Your worth, Your goodness, Your love, O God, today. We pray that You would be glorified and honored as we delight in these doctrines of grace, as we delight in the deep end of the pool, as it were, these theologies, these truths that You declare plainly and clearly. May we delight in them. May we bask in the light of Your love. And Lord, may we all be encouraged who love You that we will see You face to face in glory It is sure. It will come to pass. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. In Jesus' name, amen.